Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, Chen Shen talks about his poem, Nature Poem, from his debut collection, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a List of Further Possibilities. Chen Shen's second book of poetry, Your Emergency Contact Has Experienced an Emergency, is forthcoming from Bow Editions and Blood Axe Books in September 2022. When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a List of Further Possibilities was long listed for the National Book Award and won the Tom Gunn Award, among other honors. This is a poem called Nature Poem. The birds insist on pecking the wooded dark. The wooded dark pecks back. It is time to show the universe what you are capable of, says my horoscope, increasingly insistent this month. But what I am capable of is staring at the salt accident on the coffee table and thinking, what sad salt. I admire my horoscope for its conviction. I envy its consistency. Every day, every day, there is a future to be aggressively vaguer about. Earlier today, outside the cabin, the sudden deer were a supreme headache of beauty. Don't they know I am trying to be alone and at peace? In theory, I am alone, and really, I am hidden, which is a fine, temporary substitute for peace, except I still have email, which is how I receive my horoscope. And even here, in the wooded dark, I receive yet another email, mistaking me for another Chen. I add this to a folder, which also includes emails sent to my address, but addressed to Chang, Chin, Chung. Once, in a Starbucks, the cashier was convinced I was Chad. Once, in a Starbucks, the cashier did not quite finish the N on my Chen, and when my tall mocha was ready, they called out for share. I preferred this by far, but began to think the problem was Starbucks. Why can't you see me? Why can't I stop needing you to see me? For someone who looks like you to look at me, even as the coffee accident is happening to my second favorite shirt. In my wooded dark, I try insisting on a supremely tall, never lonely someone. But every kind of someone needs someone else to insist with. I need, if not the you I have memorized and recited and mistaken for the universe, another you. So the way that this poem began, if I can think back to it, it's quite an old poem now. Um, I think it really started with that title, Nature Poem. And it's, it's funny because I think yeah, this was before uh, Tommy Pico uh, came out with that book, a uh, book-length poem called Nature Poem. Uh, and then actually one of my uh, best friends, Sam Herschel Wine, also a poet, um, has written, has since written, um, his own poem um, called Nature Poem. That's sort of after uh, mine. Um, and I'm sure there are, there are others. Um, but I was just really drawn to the title, Um as this kind of meta tongue-in-cheek nod 
to uh, this genre or subgenre of poetry, right? The nature poem or nature poetry. And I guess I, I've been thinking about that subgenre quite a bit because it's not how I usually write. And I was curious what would happen to my voice and my sensibility if I were to write uh, a nature poem. Um, and it's funny because it's it's a subgenre that I love to to read. I'm a big fan of Mary Oliver, for instance, who I think gets sort of short shrift uh, and is sometimes considered um, a sort of uh, cheesy or easy kind of poet uh, because her work is very popular, at least in the United States. I think, yeah, there's some skepticism around nature poetry, even though it's a huge part of what you know poetry is. And I think of some other poets like Bridget Picking Kelly, for instance, so I think draws from uh, draws imagery from the natural world, concerns from the natural world in such brilliant ways. Yeah, it's something that I had uh, in part, I think, consciously avoided because I wasn't sure that I could really do it justice. Um, but I think subconsciously, I just, uh, it, it wasn't where I intu intuitively, instinctively would go uh, for the images or the diction for a poem. Uh, I tend to write about people and relationships between people. So I really wanted to see what would happen if I tried. Uh, and so I started uh, really with those uh, initial lines uh, with the birds. Uh, the birds insist on pecking the wooded dark, the wooded dark pecks back. And then my mind immediately went to something not so naturey. <laughs> Um, with the horoscope, and then the coffee table comes in. And I realized that the way that I was going to write a nature poem was by acknowledging the fact that even in a natural setting, or supposedly natural setting, uh, an isolated setting, you know, like a cabin in the woods, uh, you know, with deer or all around, I would still uh, be letting in or things would sort of intrude from outside of that bubble of nature. And instead of trying to push those things out, I was really curious, you know, what would happen if I did let them in and let that carry me through the rest of the poem? Where would I end up going? And where I ended up going was thinking about uh, these microaggressions, you know, these incidents of uh, racism and mistaken identity and being called, you know, different names or being mistaken for other Chinese people, other Asian people. Um, and that's happened quite a few times over email and also in person. Um, and so part of what the poem really became about was how inescapable that experience is, unfortunately. So even when you think, oh, I'm somewhere else, I'm isolated, I'm out in nature, I'm, you know, enjoying being away from society, uh, society will still, you know, find ways to uh, intrude, to sort of knock on your door and be like, 
hey, are you this person? <laughs> um, you know, those assumptions don't just, you know, vanish sort of magically just because you're in another setting, um, even when there aren't other, many other people around, right? It can still happen. And in part, the poem's also about just uh, the incredible and I think kind of sad, uh, sometimes maddening level of accessibility that people have uh, to, you know, to, to reach you. <laughs> um, if you have, you know, email on your phone or just, you know, text messages on, uh, things like that, you know, so people can really reach you um, at, any, at any point in, in any space. So the poem's also thinking through uh, that issue. I do think the way that I usually work or often is trying to see what I haven't done yet. I really don't want to repeat myself and I think it's going to happen anyway because you know you are the writer that you are you have the consciousness that you have you have the obsessions you have and so I try to trust that those things that those abiding things are going to continue they're going to show up anyway and so I really want to try to push myself in some new directions. I do want to challenge myself uh, and grow, continue to grow as a writer. So often I am keeping track of tendencies, of directions, and seeing where is there an opening, where is there a detour that I can take. Uh, so yeah, Nature Poem definitely came out of that. And I can think of many other poems that... Uh, have a similar trajectory and a similar origin point where I was wondering, oh, why haven't I written that kind of poem yet? Or even something as small as why haven't I used that phrase or that word yet in a poem? Am I deliberately avoiding it or it just hasn't occurred to me yet? You know, why? And thinking through um, what is my relationship to that piece of language or that kind of language or that kind of poem? Um, and then when it comes to nature poem specifically, and I'm looking at uh, the earlier draft of it as well. I mean, I'm the kind of, <laughs> I'm thinking about this a lot. I feel like I'm the kind of writer who's like, you know, I don't know if everyone has this kind of friend, um, but uh, recently we were, uh, my partner and I were visiting um, a friend of his in Rochester, New York, and we were just talking about movies, uh, upcoming movies that we want to watch. Um, and this friend, I would describe him as intensely spoiler phobic. So he really didn't want to know anything at all about you know, like not who was in it, nothing about the plot, obviously, but not even how long the movie was <laughs> or, um, you know, the setting of it. Uh, no details. Like he wanted to go in just cold and just have that experience. And I think that's how I tend to be with poems. 
Um, so in a lot of cases, like not even knowing, yeah, like what's this title going to be? Like I might have the beginning of the first line, but I don't want to have a fixed sense that, oh, this is definitely going to be the first line. I don't want to be absolutist or decided about anything. So I try to go in spoiler free um, as much as I can. And definitely looking at the earlier draft of Nature Poem, um, I think you can maybe see, like I let myself go um, in some uh, tangents and some wilder directions. I ended up uh, editing out or refining a bit in, in later drafts. But in an early draft, um, I, I, I really believe in the roughness of a rough draft uh, and letting myself fall into the mess and embracing it as a draft. Um, and I just try to give myself complete permission. I just you know tell myself, oh, no one else is going to see this. Uh, maybe you won't even see this as the author later on. Maybe you'll delete all of it. Um, although I do try to save all the drafts uh, usually. But um, it's it's really important for me to have that permission and freedom, um, especially at the beginning, just to explore, just to see, you know, what's going to arise. Um, because I think a lot of the best discoveries happen in those detours in those unexpected you know twists and turns so that's definitely what happened um in this poem um you know like i was talking through you know walking through the poem and being like oh this is you know what it's about and this is you know how it turned out but that's so after the fact you know i i didn't know any of that really when i started out i just was trying to write you know, one interesting sentence after another or one interesting line or phrase after another. You know, after I wrote one, then I would think, oh, like, what might be the most surprising or funny or weird uh, next thing, you know, um, and just step by step uh, trying to see where that, where that language and where that imagery was leading me. It's just, it's taking a lot of willpower for me just to look at the older draft. Because <laughs> uh, I just experience a lot of embarrassment um, looking at older versions. And actually, I, I went through this exercise recently with uh, my undergraduate students at Brandeis, uh, where we were talking about revision, and a colleague had really pushed me to to share some of my own drafts, which usually I don't do. Usually I talk about, you know, other people, like famous poets' drafts. Like we'll look at Elizabeth Bishop's drafts and, you know, it's fantastic to look through her process. But the vulnerability of looking at one's own drafts, I think, I think it's important, you know, for students to see that. But also on, upon reflection, I think it is, it's good for me to look back in this way. I mean, I, I do go through, I think a lot of poets have a similar experience to this, where you have this initial exhilaration and elation with, you know, just having something new that you're working on. And you're like, this is great. Uh, and you write a full draft of it. And then the next day, or even, you know, two hours later, you look at it again, and you're like, 
what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> So this is just uh, from the ending stanzas, or the second half of Nature Poem, the, the version that was published uh, by a Droid Journal. The problem with Starbucks, when probably the problem is human error, casual racism, the history of imperialism, and Starbucks. Why can't you see me, I want to say? Why can't I stop needing you to see me? For someone who looks like you to look at me, even as the ketchup accident is happening to my second favorite shirt. I'd like to live to my wildest humanity, human most wild, to be at the grocery unhinged by pineapples. The aperture of my mouth opened crazy to the color, the startle. Yes, I want to grow tall, post-apocalyptic pineapples right out of my skull. To erupt without you confirming such erupting is possible, acceptable, in someone who looks like me. I try to insist on this someone, and a future dark with so many shades of luscious, but every kind of someone needs someone else to insist with. I need, if not the you I have memorized and recited and mistaken for the universe, another you I am slowly becoming capable of needing. I think I just, I, yeah, I tend to overwrite. I overgenerate. I just create a lot of stuff. And then I have to find some kind of shape for it, some kind of like IKEA modular furniture storage solution that will work uh, for what is kind of most exciting within all that stuff. And so I would say my editing and revision process really involves taking that harder look, and it's many looks, often over many months, where I just keep revisiting. It's like this, it's like Marie Kondo going to someone's house over a year and uh, you know, saying like, how's the attic going? How is the basement coming along? You know, how are your kitchen drawers? Are they still full of old receipts? Uh, what's going on in there? And so you just start to look at the layout of the whole thing and think, oh, okay, well, this lamp in the middle of the poem is the most important part of the whole thing. It's the, the illuminating part. I'm just going to see how far I can stretch this analogy. But basically, yeah, you, you identify uh, the most important pieces, the most exciting bits of language, the most interesting ideas that come up, the most surprising moments, and see if you can really showcase them right? It's like what Marie Kondo says, you know, it's like the stuff that's most important to you. That's what you want to show. And that's what you want to like, wake up in your space and look around you and see, you know, the, like the stuff that makes you feel like you, the stuff that uh, excites you or calms you, you know, whatever it is that you need. That's what you put on display, right? And then there's a whole lot of other stuff that maybe like you don't need to put that on a bookshelf right 
the first draft or the earlier draft that um, did appear in Adroit. I think this poem went through a number of drafts, um, maybe 20, 25, somewhere around there. And actually, uh, what happened was I took this draft back in 2014, I think, to uh, my first uh, Kundiman Writers Retreat. And Kundiman is an organization that supports Asian American readers and writers. And they have an annual writing retreat in New York City. And it's such a fantastic uh, experience, the retreat. And I remember specifically bringing this poem to a workshop that the poet Michelle Naka Pierce was teaching. And she just had such weird, wacky approaches to revision where we're kind of drawing from like experimental theater and like shouting or whispering lines from our poems out loud. Um, she put like, she made this uh, box out of red tape just on the floor, on the tile floor. Uh, she just outlined this this red box and we'd have to stand in it and then uh, perform a particular piece from the poem. Um, we looked at artwork um, that she had brought, um, including these uh, silhouettes by uh, Anna Mandietta, these amazing pieces. And then we had to do our own, we had to construct our own silhouette. So we would go out uh, onto the lawn of the campus, uh, find an area to lie down. <laughs> and there were students, you know, all around. Like the campus was still fairly active, even though it was the summertime. And so we had to lie down in the middle of the campus and read our poem to ourselves, <laughs> but like out loud. And all of it was, you know, the idea was to completely reorient yourself, uh, reorient your body, your mind uh, to the poem and to your own process and kind of like interrupt habitual ways of thinking. And so actually the bits I ended up cutting came out of those exercises, those like, you know, kind of revision exercises where it's like, what else can you do with this poem? And so I think they were kind of these, like these wilder moments. Um, and so it makes sense to me that they came out of those wild exercises. Yeah, rereading, re-encountering this earlier version of the poem is making me remember uh, more of the conversations that I had with uh, Jericho Brown and Peter Connors at BOA um, with their notes and suggestions for revision. So yeah, the bits I ended up cutting, even though there's language in it that I still really like, in particular, post-apocalyptic pineapples. <laughs> um yeah, which I might recycle for something else, looking at it again. Uh, but I remember um, talking with Jericho, and specifically, I think he mentioned something about uh, just the transition in location being uh, strange, because we already have the cabin in the woods, which is sort of the nature side of things in the poem. And then we also have Starbucks, which 
becomes a kind of character in the poem, along with the cashier at Starbucks, right? So I think adding like this third location of the grocery store where something entirely different is happening um, really takes you away from uh, what was building in the poem. And there was this kind of urgent momentum that was building up in the questions. And I kept uh, the questions, I think, pretty much intact um, in the final version, the book version of the poem. Um, and so, yeah, it was through that conversation with Jericho that I really realized, oh, that's where I need to stay. That's where the poem needs to stay, is in that movement. Ultimately, I'm glad that I went through, I mean, those wacky exercises at the retreat were so fun. <laughs> and I'm glad for, you know, the writing that they resulted in and sort of like what I added to the poem. Um, because then it became clarifying later on also, like what, what does it really need, right? So again, this like decluttering process happened. But it's like, I think sometimes you have to, you have to make mistakes. You have to allow yourself to go on tangents and go on little side adventures within the poem um, and then kind of return home <laughs> and unpack and figure out, oh, like this souvenir that I bought is useless and maybe I don't you know, need it or I can re-gift it. I can give, <laughs> give the line to someone else. Craft is brought to you by Wasafrian Magazine and Queen Mary University of London, with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music and sound design is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Al-Saraji. Tom Wilson does our editing. Interviews and the introduction are by me, Malachi McIntosh. And Afsana Nishat does everything else. See you next month.